What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest. Come on, come on, come on now, people. Put yourself to the test. Every monopoly has a priority. We want to be equally free. The mere hate me, discriminate me, but you can't change the way I feel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Uh, my name is Amina Daugherty, and I will be your host today. I'm really excited for this, our very first episode of Young Women Speak Out. Um, Young Women Speak Out is a six-week program being hosted by the Sylvia Global Media. Um, and the purpose of the show is to elevate the voices of young women from around the world doing really cool and important work. Um, over, the next six week, uh, over the next six weeks, I will be speaking to young activists um, from across Africa and the Caribbean that have found creative and engaging ways to bring together their work around women's rights, social justice, um, with their creative passions and the arts. So we'll be talking feminism, fashion, leadership, music, art, philanthropy, the whole work. Um, this week, I have a really amazing guest, Spectra, on Twitter, mm-hmm. at Spectra Speak, um, and I will let her introduce herself in a moment. Um, but before we get started, just a couple of things that I want everyone to remember. The show is streaming live on the Sylvia Global website, which is www.sylviaglobal.com. Also on the Sylvia Global YouTube channel. Um, and if you happen to miss the show, which I hope you don't, but if you happen to miss the show, we will be uploading a podcast um, that you can listen to on Blog Talk Radio within the next week. Second thing is, I really want as many people as possible to stay engaged with the show, so please join the conversation. You can tweet questions to me at SheRocksLocks, that's S-H-E-R-O-X-L-O-X, using the hashtag YoungWomenSpeakOut. Or you can simply add questions into the YouTube channel. Um, the link should um, come up soon, um, and I will pick those up during the course of the show. So. I hope you're as excited as I am for Young Women Speak Out. This is the first time that I'm doing something like this, so really, really excited. Um, and I will int- let my guest introduce herself. So, Spectra, over to you. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, thanks for having me on here. Uh, it's, this part is always really funky. I've done this so many times, but I never remember how to introduce myself. So, um, I'm an activist, a media activist, so my battleground is media. Um, I'm originally from Nigeria. I'm a writer, I'm an animal lover, I create things, I love people most of the time, um, love animals all of the time, and I'm just really excited to be on the show, so let's start Yay. from there. Yay, thank you. Well, you know, it's funny, because I was reading your bio on your um, on your website, on your blog, which I really, really love, and for those of you that uh-huh. have, don't know Spectra's website, it's www.spectraspeaks.com, um, and blog. I was... <laughs> and I, I was, you know, I really like the description on that. But I was thinking of my, you know, how would I introduce you? And 
you know, I said, when I think of Spectra, what comes to mind is this fiery African feminist. And this is the image. So come follow me, people. I have this like loudspeaker okay. in one hand, a computer or a phone or whatever you need to blog <laughs> to the other. And it's like a massive heart spreading Afrofem love. So that's my idea of a, a Spectra superhero. Any um, awesome. geniuses out there that want to draw that and send that to me, please do. Um, so have I missed out anything? Or have I pretty much got it covered? You know, that's really funny. Um <laughs> I don't really I don't really see myself as a superhero. Um I see myself as a loudspeaker, absolutely. Uh for my story and for, for, for others who are not in a privileged position to speak. Um but I think it's really funny that you have a cell phone or or something electronic on the other hand, because I am a you know borderline millennial millennial because I was, I was born in the age of the computer i've been typing since i was seven my handwriting is terrible so most of my um negotiation um in the world has happened online um i think most babies are born texting these days so yeah um, it's really interesting to have that really big world view and like community love and then on one hand it's like but i'm on my laptop and you can see i'm in my messy bedroom so it's kind of like unglamorous <laughs> I love it's it. Very unglamorous, it. but yeah, that's that's my life. <laughs> I love it. Well, kind of to get started in our conversation, I'm actually going to take a question that is coming to us via Twitter, because um, oh, we're trying to stay as engaged as possible. So nice. uh, this question is from at Black Girl in the Ring, who asks, "Did you choose your activism, or did it choose you?" Wow, you know, I saw that early this morning, and I said to myself, <laughs> "I am going to think about or respond to that question," and I never got around to it. Um, funny because I was doing work. Okay. So, you know, when I think about that, you know, this, this idea of choice and since, you know, for people that are unfamiliar with my work, um, I use love as a, um, it's my compass, it's my navigation system. So I view my work through the lens of love a lot. Um, and I talk about mm -hmm. love a lot. And so when people ask me, you know, did your activism choose you? Did you choose your activism? I immediately, that, that was my gut reaction. I mean, I thought about my relationship with my partner Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, if people asked me, did I choose my partner, did she choose me, that would be a very complicated question because throughout our relationship or, or the beginning of our relationship, we were negotiating, am I chasing you or are you chasing me? Like, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> uh -huh. And it's a very, it's a very developed, uh, developed, I'm having an immigrant moment, a, a stage of development, right, mm -hmm. where you're trying to figure out your place, your role, um, how you can contribute, what you're bringing, and what, what sucks about you. And so I think about activism in that way. I think about the times that, you know, well, so even the name, it's funny, I only came to that name a few years ago, but I think about the times in which I've been called to do things that I normally would not have done um, mm -hmm. and have surprised myself. I think about times when um, in the courting stage, and I was trying to figure this stuff out, you know, things mm -hmm. that I did that were awkward, that were wrong, and how embarrassing it was, how cringeworthy it was. So I really do think about it as a relationship. And given that I'm in a a very happy relationship, you know, I think that love is a choice and that you you choose each other every day. So mm -hmm. there's days that I don't want to do any work at all. I don't mm -hmm. feel like I don't feel like writing. I don't feel like um engaging. I'm tired of the world. I'm sick of it. Um and then I come to the realization that maybe it's not the world is the problem. Maybe there's something that that it's maybe I'm the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it's just it's really an ongoing relationship. It's like the person that you grow old with, you know, and activism came to me um, at a very young age, and I've been blessed, I think, you know, to, to be able to grow from it. Um, so it's certainly a relationship that I choose, and it chooses me, even when I don't want to 
to continue, but I think right. that's the best, you know, best of any relationship. Well, I think that's a really, really great answer, and I would say the same for me. I mean, I've had young women that have come up to me and said, you know, can you teach us activism 101? Like, what's that about? And I, and I try and say, you know, you come to activism from a feeling in your heart that something, mm. that you want to change something. And so that's kind of the message that, you know, I would like to put out there, and I think that that's kind of what you shared as well. With You know, it's something that you feel. You know, yeah. you're trying, you, it's, it's something that you're trying to do and trying to change. So yeah. um, I love that answer, and I hope that answers the question, Black Girl in the Room. Yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> whoever asked that question. I'm really long-winded <laughs> because I'm a no, writer. No. So sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I think you did a really great job. And um, so, yes, retweet us. Ask us more questions. Come back to us. But I think that, you know, what you did was help me segue into what I really, you know, wanted to talk about um, first in this conversation, which was um, – the politics of love, and actually, I, I should say that that's how I found your work first. Um, really? When I didn't know you, I mean, that's how I found Spectra's work was her writing on Afrofem love, and that's what I would like for you to introduce to the listeners, to people watching. Um, what is Afrofem love, and and why should we know about it? Um, well, Afrofem love is a hashtag I created. I create funny hashtags all the time, but this one stuck. Um, I wasn't, I always say, I was, not, I was never indoctrinated to feminism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I am a scientist. I went to, you know, really techie school. I was doing math, and I just, I was very disengaged from, like, women's studies or gender studies or anything. But from a very, very young age, um, women's issues have always been um, at the forefront of my mind. My mother is, she's, she's a philanthropist. She planned uh, women's events for, for years, and so it's part of my childhood, it's part of my backdrop that I saw women doing things for other women and for young girls and for anyone in need from a very, very young age, and it wasn't, at least in my household, it wasn't labeled as activism or even philanthropy, it was just something that my mom did. Mm-hmm. And when I came to um, the United States, so I came in when I was 18 for school, um, you know, I was I remember just being at a student fair and seeing all these buzzwords, you know, change and activism, <laughs> social justice and all intersectionality. <laughs> and I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> so um I would often ask people like, Well, okay, this is all great, but what are you doing and why are you doing it? You know, and that's how I got involved in um women's women's rights, reproductive justice when I was in college. But even then, I never really called myself an activist. And I think, you know, where I'm going with this is as I was getting older, I was getting more and more language to describe what it was I was doing, which was just generally acting on my empathy and compassion for the world, that these are things I was doing because I cared. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw that how they affected me and the women, you know, in my life. So I was just doing them. And then people started putting labels on them. I remember the first time someone called me an activist, I was like, what? <laughs> really? Okay. Um <laughs> But then, you know, I fell into, because I was doing a lot of women's work, I fell into a lot of feminist circles. And feminism became this word that was just like, I felt like if I did not completely submit to it, that I was not allowed to join the club. It really <laughs> felt like a girl's, like a playground kind of situation where everyone's like, well, if you're going to, you know, be over here, then you have to call yourself a feminist. And it was just very, um, it was not a, a pleasant introduction to it. And so I resisted it for a very, very long time. Not because I found the ideas objection, objectionable or, um, that I didn't completely, you know, co-sign the core values of feminism, but just the mm. the group dynamics around it were just not, didn't feel like they um, colored my world in the way that I saw it, right? So I was like, well, that's not enough. And so I spend more time in uh, social justice, social change spaces, because at least in my circles, 
they weren't as militant about what you called yourself. You just needed to care about social change. So I was like, okay. Right, uh-huh. so you had all kinds of people, environmentalists, feminists, and so there was just more diversity there. But I also found in those spaces that sort of the militant compassion and the militant dedication to um, women's and gender's, gender issues were not always there, and that's something that's very core to me. So that wasn't enough. Um, and so what I think, you know, Afrofeminism, I sort of, I, just, I didn't invent the word. It's, it's out there, but I, I don't think it's been used very popularly, you know, in, at least in contemporary times, but or at least not in my circles. And I was just like, well, I like this because it sort of affirms my Africanness, right? So feminism, mm-hmm. the, the other thing about it was that it was very, very white. It was very, very American-centric just based on where I was. Um, and I found that I had different ideas about how to contribute to the women's movement that was a little bit more focused on community, a little bit more focused on um, capacity, you know, do what you can with what you have where you are. That was just a very, very mm-hmm. um, simple principle that I, I lived by, you know, growing up and seeing my mom. And so that was missing from that feminist space. So I think what I did was just kind of put together a hodgepodge of <laughs> frameworks, honestly, of frameworks mm-hmm. that really resonated with me and then, you know, inserted my spirituality, which is just, you know, just love as, as, as a way to, to live in the world, to move in the world and to relate to others. And I think just all of those things, you know, is, is what grounds me. And it's a name. Right? It's, you know, Afrofem love, Afrofeminist. It could be called anything else, but it's just kind of like um, a way I center myself in my work so that I don't lose my way. It's a very sensing mm-hmm, way I move mm-hmm. forward. I think that's a, you know, it's, it's a really beautiful kind of story for us so that we can understand that, you know, coming into feminism, that we all come into feminism from different places. Yeah. And I really kind of want to just, you know, reiterate the idea that there are multiple feminisms. There are many ways to be feminist. Um, and so when you mm-hmm. talk about that, but you know, that kind of, special club, you know, I'm yeah. trying to, and this is kind of why we have to show, is trying to break that open and to say there are many ways to be feminist, and then, you know, you can be engaged and involved in doing many different things, um, and still, you know, call yourself a feminist, and so that's Absolutely. why, that, you know, this is really important. Or One of not, the things that I, I want think, to, I'm sorry, I have to, I have to interject, oh, or not, because I think, I think for me, um, like I traveled last year through uh, Southern Africa, and we're getting and to it. Oh, okay. But I was doing a lot of work with women, you know, women and girls groups. And, you know, feminism, because, I mean, call it what you want. You can explain it, you know, through patriarchy. You can explain it through people, like, whatever. Um, It's such a heavy word for some people. And, like, for me, again, I think where it comes back to my values and what I saw my mom doing, it's not really about how I self-identify. More so is what the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so I really strongly in my work, at least advocate for meeting people where they're at, which is why. So it's not to say that, you know, feminism was this big, bad club or it is. I, I completely agree with you. There's multiple expressions and manifestations of that. But I do think that there there needs to be a, a bigger conversation about um, this socially accepted, at least that I've seen, socially accepted um, demand that people label themselves feminists who mm-hmm. are just trying to do sort of gender justice work, right? So for me, it's like, I'm proudly feminist. My work is proudly feminist, but it really depends on my space as well, right? So working in like mm-hmm. a rural area with, with, with women who have been doing, you know, gender equality work, but not necessarily calling it feminist work for whatever reason, it's important to me that, you know, the people that I work with, and especially myself, I hold myself accountable, you know, kind of lead with, with what makes sense to them to get the work mm-hmm. done. Um, so that's something I wanted to, to throw out there because it's very, very important to me. That's awesome. And and 
you know, while we're talking about feminism, talking about African feminism, um, mm-hmm. I know that you're, you know, you you often tweet using the hashtag AfriFem, um, which yeah. I know a number <laughs> of African feminists use. But I want to ask you um, if you could, because I'm always trying to find, you know, new people to read or new things to learn. And so if you could share, you know, one or two African feminists that have really inspired you, um, and, you know, even if it's like a book that you've read by someone or a really life-changing critical text or something that has come, yeah. you know, from an African feminist, if you could share that with us so that, you know, other people, you know, can, can read or, or look look Yeah, self-identified or... I mean, I mean as, <laughs> as, you know, as you as you you know yeah. we talked about it you know I read yeah. certain politics so so go for it. Yeah, I recently read last year. I read this book. I wrote a review about it on my blog. It's called I Dare to Say, and it's an anthology um, written by or compiled by a Ugandan organization um, that like promotes women's voices in literature. Um, so they. Uh, they compiled an anthology that was about women dealing with different kinds of trauma, and it was divided into four sections, and I hope I can remember them now. It was like war, um, so conflict, by like gender and conflict. There was female mm-hmm. genital cutting. Um, there was domestic violence, and then there was uh, sexual assault. And I think, mm-hmm. um, or I know, like that book completely, um, it was just so powerful because they, they – they worked with a group of writers who were interested in helping people document those stories, but then they worked collaboratively mm-hmm. with the survivors of the, different, of the different kinds of trauma. So what it felt like a series of interviews, but in a very, very beautiful, narrative, painful, poignant form. Um, and it took me a very, very long time to get to the book because these were just such raw, uh, painful, and, and empowering experiences. It was all of those things. It was so complex. And that's why I really, really loved it. It wasn't trying to paint African women as, as victims, but actually... At the end of the book, I felt that they were so powerful and so amazing for t- telling their stories. I felt, you know, what a privilege for me to be like, oh, I'm suffering through this book. I can't read it anymore versus mm-hmm. versus the person that actually um, had to relive that experience in, in, in words and in writing. So I really, really uh, strongly encourage people to read that book. It's called Remind us the name book. of the book. And the, the, I dare to say. And the organization is um, FEMRITE, F-E-M-R-I-T-E. Um, so okay. that's one book. Um, and another film that I just really, really um, connected to a couple of years ago was Pariah. Um, mm-hmm. And Pariah is uh, a coming-of-age is a coming-of-age story, a teenager, black, um, lesbian, and um, dealing with gender. And what I really liked about that film is that you kind of, well, one, you don't see brown people. You don't see, like, people of African descent in LGBT films often. And so this one, the entire cast was, like all brown, so like get rid of that issue where like we have one stereotype and we're all angry. They're all angry at the stereotype. So this is just like this is a full expression and diversity of like blackness and brownness. And then also she was already lesbian. She already knew she liked girls, and so it gave us the room, or it gave the filmmaker and the audience the room to um, learn about different issues beyond the LGBT 101. Mm-hmm. But it's still a really really good film for people who are interested in. You know, like, what is it like to be an LGBT, you know, person of color or an LGBT, mm-hmm. African, not African, but, you know, we have shared experiences. So I really like that film. So um, D. Reese, the director of that, is, is one of my heroes. Oh, good, good, good. Well, definitely yeah. we're going to put the, the links um, in the YouTube video so that everyone who has been following and wants to check out both of those, um, the book and the film, can, can do that. Um, so... This is a question that's actually coming from Facebook, um, and someone oh. says, "Someone, like all I'm, all o- I'm all over today. 
I'm on it. I'm being the social media guru person today. So okay. <laughs> this is a question from Facebook. Um, and I think that it ties in with, you know, what you've just been talking about, uh, the power of media and, and what you talk about a lot, you know, the importance of as Africans, as women, as queer people, you know, everyone telling their own story. So the question uh-huh. is, what is media activism and how did you get into it? Oh, God, another long-winded answer. Um, media activism. So there's activism, which I think people have sort of a general understanding of. You just see something that you want to make better in the world, and you do it. Um, so that's that's how I define activism, just doing whatever you can with where you are, with what you have to make the world better. And media activism for me is doing that um, within the realm of media. So... Um, I think, you know, I always go back to the story because it's really the origins of where I started. I was um, a young Nigerian immigrant, you know, straight, straight off the, well, not the boat, but the plane, or whatever. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, wrestling with my identity as someone who's always been a tomboy, like just trying to, to figure that out, but then also wrestling with um, sexuality. I knew that I liked girls, but I was like, is this? Is this a Nigerian thing? Is this allowed? I was still carrying a lot of, like, homophobic mm-hmm. um, messages in my head. And so it made me very, very anxious all the time and, and just really, like, awkward and self-conscious. Um, I was, you know, as as well as trying to get used to a new landscape in, you know, the United States. And so while I was in college, you know, and most colleges do a great job of, cre- of creating so many student groups and opportunities for you to connect and feel at home. You have the black students group. You have the you know, women's whatever here, you have International Society over there, so there's all these groups, and I joined every single one of them because I was just trying to ground myself. But what I discovered, you know, as I was, you know, thinking, oh, my God, I like girls, I can't talk to anyone about it, this is weird, I just need to forget about this and join all these different groups and just, you know, (laughs) be affirmed in my cultural identity. So as I was doing this, um, it started coming up, maybe because I liked girls, I was hearing it more. It probably was always there. But now, maybe because of this awareness of, like, I like girls, um, I was hearing homophobia everywhere. Mm-hmm. So in the black women's group, you know, we'd go to church, and then after, during brunch, people would just, it's like, how did we go from talking about what the pastor was saying to, you know, oh, lesbians are disgusting? Like, how did we get there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the pastor wasn't saying lesbians are disgusting. Just people just inserted homophobia so casually, like, every other sentence. So it became very unwelcoming for me. The international community was great because it was like, oh, we all speak different languages, we all have different accents, and it helped me, you know, not feel so homesick in that way. But it was also just as homophobic and racist. Like, there's a lot of Europeans in there. They were really racist. Um, And so I started seeing this counselor to just talk about, uh, my friend was like, you need to talk to someone, you're getting really depressed, you're skipping class, go talk to Mm -hmm. a counselor and see, you know, just talk to someone. So I was talking to a counselor, and she said, well, you know, there's this queer or LGBT student rainbow lounge thing that you should just go and see if it if it fits. And I remember walking in there. Well, first of all, being nervous. I don't want anyone to see me walking in here. You know, this is just such a weird thing. I'm going to meet other gay people. Mm-hmm. And I walk into this lounge, this little dingy lounge at the most remote corner of the campus, and I see about five, six-foot-something white dudes, right? And they're all really sweet. They all look at me at the same time. They're like, Hi! And it was the scariest thing ever. It was the scariest thing ever for me because it felt so unfamiliar and it only just kind of reinforced why I was having such a hard time accepting myself because it's like these people don't look like me. All the LGBT people I see are all white or 
predominantly male or, you know, and, and in mm-hmm. a certain way they're wearing rainbow flags and half naked on campus. I was really conservative back then. So I was like, this is not, like, this is not me. My mom didn't send me here to be, like, dancing around naked in the middle of a public square. So, you know, that experience, I think, you know, just sort of sent me plummeting down a very downward spiral. I got very depressed. I stopped going to class. I stopped talking to my friends because they could tell something was wrong, but I couldn't tell them why, you know, why, mm-hmm. I, was, why I was sad because I didn't want to out myself. Um, and then I tried um, talking to one of my really good friends. And when I told her, she looked at me. And then she started laughing, and she was like, oh, my God, Chick, you had me going there for a second. I was so scared that you were actually serious. And so she goes on, and she's like, yeah, because I was thinking we slept in the same bed together. And she just goes off about how she's so grateful that, you know, I wasn't gay, because then that would have made her uncomfortable. So I was like, sure. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, long story short, I got really depressed. Um, I was crying one day in my room, and... I decided the worst decision ever I could have made was to Google was to Google um, LGBT and Nigeria. And the things that I saw, um, the articles I read, the, the forums, because there wasn't that much consciousness then, but there was enough consciousness for you to know that, you know, Nigerians thought you were going to hell and you were an abomination. So I just got sucked into reading all of those things, and it just made me really, really sad. Um, and I tried to take my own life that evening. And so I think, you know, when I talk about, activism and media media specifically, um, it's because I remember that night and that remember moment, yeah. being so um, just lost and, and mm-hmm. really, really sad and just kind of wanting anything, a branch, just like an, a little extension of if I had seen another queer Nigerian online, if I would seen some sort of like discussion that wasn't about me going to hell, I think it would have helped, but it wasn't there. It was completely missing. And the people mm-hmm. that were writing about them were um, very conservative and or, or, you know, from outside researchers saying about how it was such a terrible place to be gay. Um, so after that, you know, I think all of my work has been to create media that better reflects our experiences, um, the realities of it, but also um, amplifies our voices and the narratives that are missing. Um, mm-hmm. In this day and age, we don't go to libraries as much anymore to look for information. We don't. Or encyclopedias. Yeah, or encyclopedias. That's what people used to do back in the day. Or you ask your parents. And now, you know, with this generation being so rebellious and rogue, we don't even do that anymore. Now we go to Google, um, and we go to we go online and we ask people in our networks. And so, mm-hmm. having media on there that reflects who we are and is affirming and, and you know, provides resources extremely important to me. So that's the mm-hmm. core um, of my work. And I do that in three ways. I write about my life. I write about um, me personally. I use the tags Nigerian and LGBT all the time. So if anyone ever was like me, you know, was it over 10 years ago, they can find my site and know that they can see that I, they will at, at least reach the age of 32, which is how mm-hmm. old I am. Because when I did, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not I'm not going to make it. So um, I write about my life just for that. And I also train other people. Um, to, that's what I did last year. We said we were going to get to that, training people to tell their stories, you know, blogging, tweeting, writing op-eds for newspapers, just so that we, our voices as African women um, and people of different experiences can be part of the mainstream media conversation. And then lastly, you know, engaging with journalists because they're the ones who do the most damage. Um, when they write about Africa and how it's constantly burning to the ground, when they write about LGBT Africa and how we're constantly being raped and killed, it doesn't really help. So just learning to, um, teaching them to, to write about sensitive issues with some accountability and some sensitivity mm-hmm. um, is the realm of what I do. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing <laughs> that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
And I was going to ask you about Africans for Africa, and now I have so many other questions. I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to just stick with it. Okay. I'm going to stick with it and go. And, and um, one of the things that I'm really passionate about um, is sharing knowledge, is, is mobilizing resources, is, you know, in development techie speak, call it capacity building and resource right. mobilization. But you get me. Like, it's just really sharing what's out there with everyone else, Absolutely. bringing people along with. And so that's why you mentioned it. You've mentioned it a couple of times, but your Africans for Africa campaign um, tell me about that. Tell me, I want to know how you made it happen, and I want to know yeah. what you did and what your most favorite uh, experience uh, was. Oh, wow. Um, in a nutshell. In, yeah. in, in a nutshell. Um, so the Africans for Africa project was born out of this sort of a similar idea that I just talked about where, mm -hmm. you know, I was looking at, you know, how the West, and, you know, UK, US, you know, Western countries were covering um, LGBT Africa, particularly after, you know, a couple of years ago when a prominent LGBT Ugandan activist was murdered. And mm -hmm. he was very well connected to international development spaces. And so I think that's why there was a lot of buzz around it. But all of a sudden, you know, the world focused on Africa and LGBT issues on the continent. And the way that they were writing about it um, was very infantilizing, you know, making us out to be victims and, like, ignoring the and work of say, activists. And just to say for people that are following, um, his name is David Kato, just for people. David Kato, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and just, you know, making, sort of writing about these issues in a way that completely ignored the work of LGBT activists that have been working on issues, like, long before it became a movement um, and all these things. And I was getting frustrated because I see, you know, major news outlets, reputable news outlets, you know, cover mm -hmm. issues in such a way that was like, this is terrible journalism. And... Who did you speak to? Who are your sources? How can you make such authoritative statements like that? And then the more I thought about it, the more frustrated I became. And I wanted to, I was like, I train people here in the United States to use, you know, social media to connect with donors, to, you know, to build presence. And like, I honestly, I'd just rather go back to the continent and do it, you know, in my mm -hmm. own space with people. Because people were asking me for it. They're like, oh, if you could train us, if you could do this, you know, that would be great because, we know social media and technology are really important, but funders won't, you know, they won't, like, support us being trained, mm -hmm. um, partly because funders were still like, this social media thing, what's going mm -hmm. on? But they saw other issues as higher priority, like HIV AIDS or, mm -hmm. you know, things that were really, really direct service they, they prioritized. But, and, and the people on the ground weren't able to um, articulate how, um, using media and technology and, and, and strategic communications could, in fact, actually enhance that work. Um, specifically, like, please speak to me. I'm a blogger. I'm a, I'm, well, not me, but, like, saying I'm an activist, not, you know, mm -hmm. I'm like, here I am. I've been working with women who are LGBT in this, you know, township for 10 years. If you're going to write, you know, a New York Times op-ed about that, please talk to me and not, some scholar, you like stuck in a library. The expert now. You're the expert. The you know, Africa so that, expert. Right. So that was really important to be able to amplify that kind of thought leadership, to really like lift up leaders. And I really wanted to do that, but was kind of like, oh, I don't know. Um, and then I met a South African when I went to a, a conference who um, told me about all this amazing work he was doing, and he was trans, and he's been able to you know, advocate for trans rights even more advanced or more, uh, make more progress than even in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's a narrative that you know I wasn't hearing a lot. But when I got back and I want got back to the United States and I wanted to write about him, I couldn't find him anywhere online. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, okay, that's it, <laughs> I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that project, the Africans for Africa project, was really 
um, born out of that idea. And so I wanted to go and teach people social media for visibility, um, blogging for thought leadership, because it's how I, I mean, I've been just writing for a really long time, and most of my professional contacts, most of the work I get is usually through my blog. And also when people call me to comment on things, it's because they found my blog. So I, I recognize it as a very, very useful social capital, mm-hmm. and I wanted to teach people uh, to be able to do that. Um, but also I wanted to teach them how to do online fundraising um, so that they could kind of subvert this um, so they didn't need to go through funders for everything, right? Mm-hmm. So the funders like, oh, we won't do this, but they only needed like, you know, $2,000, $3,000. It's something that, that that was accessible to them. And I was like, if I'm going to teach people fundraising, I'm going to have to do it myself. So I launched a, a Indiegogo Kickstarter. It's like an online platform where you can, you know, connect, use your network to raise funds. Small mm-hmm. crowdfunding. Crowdfunding from, from large amounts of people. Um, and I raised about uh, like over 12k in 30 days, and then also Amazing. extra from like um, local like events that I organized. Um, and that was twofold: one to help me partly fund fund the travel because um, I was just I was gonna do it like bootstrapping style, just staying with people, um, like eating ramen. I was really gonna be very careful <laughs> about this. I was really supposed to cover flights, and then I was like, God will provide the rest. So I was like just trying to get um, initial funds, but also use myself as a case study and that was very effective because it's easy to go to different countries and to speak with people who are so like like embedded in the struggle and be like you should go online and raise money and they'll be like you're an idiot we have so many things to do and so I had to be able to prove that um, it it could work and people were very very they were, I saw that they were more motivated to try it because I was like I did it this is what I did this is how I failed failed. Um, so I led that that crowdfunding campaign um, and then just reached out to so many different NGOs in my network to be like, look, I'm going to be in this region for this long. Um, what groups out there do you think that I should visit? I'm interested in working with women-led and, you know, women-centric uh, gender justice organizations and also LGBT. So just connect mm-hmm. me. And people did. And at first it was difficult. I was getting up every day and going out and meeting people and, you know, doing like, one-hour training here, the intro, minutes yeah. here, the intro, but then very, very quickly, um, because I think it was also going very well, people started forwarding my contact information to other people, um, mm-hmm. and like, can, yo, you can stay with my, my aunt, you can stay with this person, so not just even the professional contact, but like the entire thing was very crowdfunded. So I want to ask you, um, just a quick question before we move on, I want to ask you, um, do you have your your sort of personal case study documented somewhere that people can go and read about what you did? Not yet. Um, and that's honestly such a, it's my bad. I actually was going to work on it um, over the winter break. We just came out of winter in mm-hmm. Boston. Um, but I just fell into a slump. I think last year really took a huge toll on me, traveling for six months, staying with different people. I got back mm-hmm. and I was like, now I'm ready to like <laughs> write and tell everyone. And I just, I just kind of retreated um, a little. I needed to center. But it's been very good because it's been a really good, uh, powerful reflection process. And I think now whatever I write will have the best of it, you know, mm-hmm. and not just kind of like, you know, just filler, but like it'll really get the strongest parts. And I definitely want to cover crowdfunding. Um, I've started writing already about tips for crowdfunding that are on my site. Mm-hmm. Um, but just sort of insights I learned, too, from trying awesome. to get people to, to learn ICT or, or media um, and just the awesome. 
the problems they're having and how to overcome them. Yeah. So look for it. It'll come out. <laughs> we're, we're, we're waiting. We're waiting. One of the things, because I was following you over the six months, um, one of the mm-hmm. things that I loved, because I'm also a music buff, and so I'm always looking for new artists, new people to follow. One of the yeah. things that you put me on to was um, a Namibian artist named Shoshani, who yeah. um, has just put out a song called Minority, which we're going to play now so people can watch it and hear the song. Um, we're going to play it now. But also, I have been in touch with Shoshani, and she sends, you know, greetings for the show. She's very excited <laughs> about this first show. And she wanted me to tell everyone that she has just been nominated for Best Music Video at the Namibian Music uh, Awards. So people yeah. can vote for her. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.